Welcome Home Radio Podcast. Are you looking to buy or sell your home? Our team is here with answers to guide you through the buying and selling process. We encourage you to ask questions. Please comment on this show or visit us at welcomehomeradio.net for more information. Bringing real estate, lending, and education together in one place and to help you make the right home decision for you and your family. Here are your hosts, Blair Thomas, Tom Holm, Alan Pace, and Jeff Duffy. And welcome to Welcome Home Radio, where real estate, lending, and learning come together. It is July 26th. I hope you're staying cool and hydrated out there. We're really excited about sharing with you today. We're going to be discussing how many different people are involved in the home buying, home selling process. You generally work with a lender. You might work with a realtor. But how many other people are behind all of those that are supporting your efforts on a single contract? We want to discuss that today. And I want to welcome our co-host, Jeff, Alan, Tom. How are you all today? Howdy. Doing great. Yay. Welcome. Welcome. Oh, we got the the hot hands. Yeah. Cheer hands. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. hands. That's what you're looking for. That's how uncouth and uneducated I am as a grandfather. Dishpan hands right here. (laughs) Well, listen, guys, we want to talk about normally a client, we can look on the buyer sell side, deals with a realtor first. Then, of course, other things start happening. Realtors are recommending or giving in or, or someone brings in a lender. And those are generally the two people that are key with the client. But there's so many more people behind the scenes doing work. So I really want to get into that. Alan, from the realtor side, how many different people get involved into a contract, whether you're selling or buying? Who are those folks behind you? Oh, my gosh. It just depends on the situation, the home and all that. But Typically, you know, when I talk to a client for the first time, or they're not a client yet, but I'm just talking with them. Um, first step is a lender. Um, without money, there's we don't go any further. So once a lender says, yeah, they're a good buyer, they can buy, then, then you start going. And from there, it just goes depending on what the situation is. Um, you know, different homes. New homes are different than resale homes. And fixer uppers and different than just move in ready homes. And depending on the situation, a lot of people get involved. Obviously Jeff's here title gets involved and uh, you know, home inspectors and foundation people and plumbers possibly. And um, just so many roofers, just air conditioning. Well, let's, let's take that. You, you've covered a lot of folks, but let's take it one day, you know, the immediate thing you're buying a home right off the bat signed a contract, you're going to do a home inspection so that that person comes in and helps you and the buyer understand any potential problems or good things. What does that home inspector do for your client? Well, it's, it's a couple things. It, it says one, it's, you know, here's the issue with the home. There's issues or there's no issues, but there's always issues. So it's, it's what can you handle as a, as a home buyer? You want good information. When you go in and look at a home, all you see is what you're looking at. You really don't see what's in the attic. You don't, you know, you don't know how things work necessarily. And if you're showing a home and you see a lot of problems with a house and you can just see them, then that's a red flag for if they're not taking care of things you're actually looking at while you're looking at it. My goodness, 
what's in the attic, what's in the closets, you know, and if you're in a basement community, what's in the basement, you know, in, in another state. So inspectors, they check it all out. Um, they know a lot about everything, but they're, I wouldn't say they're expert at any one thing, but they will get you to a place. If it needs addressing, your home inspector will get, get us to there and they'll get us to that point as a team. One of the funniest things I, I found on one inspection that, uh, in fact, a friend of ours, Mike did for, for us was the attic ladder was very, uh, let's just say not secure, could not sustain weight. And it was something simple, but he said it was very challenging. He didn't trust it enough that he brought his own ladder to go up and climb up into the attic because of that. And that was Mark, but that's what that home inspector does for you is make you aware of things that maybe, or that you would not have noticed or that can be quickly painted over and, and obscured, but they're gonna look at those things intently being hot water heaters, things, are they working? All of that. Is that correct? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny you said the ladder going to the attic because the home I'm sitting in, that was an issue. Or my inspector said, that ladder, it's not good. You know, and when you're 200 pounds and you got 100 pounds in your arms, it's going to have to hold 300, 400 pounds, whatever it is. And they don't. A lot of them don't. And that's a key issue, but my yeah. ladder has to hold 300 pounds no matter what. I don't know. What that <laughs> <laughs> oh, one step at a time, Blair. Take your time, brother. <laughs> so, okay. So we've got the home inspectors. We've got several other services that may be provided, but then the loan or the, the contract comes to a lender and immediately we get involved with the whole team. And I want to go into, you know, of course, I, I'm blessed to have a loan assistant wonderful help to help process the loan. Then we have a processing group that handles the loan, make sure it's ready for underwriting, gathering of documents, communication with the client, disclosures have to be sent out. I don't mean to skip over them very quickly, but they're all in very needed things. Uh, Tom, help us understand why, because disclosures have to be sent out. Communication has to be understood. And one of those things, you know, used to be a good faith estimate is now called a loan estimate or LE. Why are these disclosures coming out? I've got one right now, a first time home buyer. They don't, why are we signing these now? Why are we having to do this now? Help our listeners understand why does a loan have to be disclosed to them right off the bat? Well, first off, the most important thing to probably recognize is the fact that it takes a while for people to absorb what they're doing. And it gives them a chance to get a feel for. And one of the things that happens nowadays, first off, is the required timeline says that no buyer can go out and get a federally insured or federally related mortgage situation without a seven day thinking period. And that's kind of the primary part here that's going on behind it. It used to be in the good old days, if you came in and applied for a loan on a Monday, I could close you on that loan on Friday or maybe even Thursday. And people would come to the closing and they'd sit down with Jeff and say, what am I signing? Well, that's the last thing you want to happen when you're making a commitment for the next 30 years to make a payment. So what's happened is the industry has gone towards 
being a little bit better with regards to responsibilities and responsible disclosing. Uh, it's called one of the things that CFPB set up, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau set up in 2010, was the initiative about know before you owe. And the know before you owe initiative created what we call the TRID stuff you just mentioned, the loan estimate piece. Think of this, the industry prior to 2010 did not have a consistent form that was used to tell people how much they were going to spend over the next 30 years when they got a mortgage. There wasn't a consistent form. If I went to your shop and then I went to Mary's shop and then I went to Bill's shop and I asked them for a breakdown of their cost, they could all give me a different form. It looked differently. It could be different. It could be deceptive as far as what it was telling me. Today, the disclosure piece has been much more uh, streamlined to be uniform, whereas it was not that way many years ago. And we saw what happened in 2008 as a result of that. Mm, that was a mess. <laughs> you know, you just, here's this from Arian, Tom, and you say it um, when they come to the closing that quickly. But the unfortunate thing, I mean, here's a good, here's the good reason for CFPB is that we had people that would come to closing, sit down to sign their closing documents. All of a sudden, they had to bring in another $3,500 to close. And, and that throws people, you know, if you've saved your money, you've worked really hard to get ready to buy this home, and all of a sudden, your numbers change drastically at the closing table. It was really unfortunate to see. So that was yeah. a good play as far as protecting the public, for sure. That's a nightmare scenario. And it, and it happened on, you know, many occasions. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, 75%, but a, I would say a good 20, 25% of people coming in sat down and said, what's this extra 500 bucks for? Well, you know, I had to broker your loan and, uh, you know, I saw $500 additional in your bank account. So let's just go ahead and charge for that additional uh, underwriting fee. Literally, we, and I mean, my company did this as well. Literally, we tell them that their underwriting fee was, you know, supposed to be $700. But by the time we brokered the loan, well, the broker's charging an extra $500, $700. And, we, you know, we didn't know about that. So we're charging that here at the end. And Jeff makes that perfect description of that was unfair. That just That just isn't right to be a borrower committing to a loan and not have enough disclosure up front to have a commitment from the lender. In today's mindset, of course, the lender has a very small amount of tolerance that they can give. And if they screw it up because they didn't talk to Jeff about his cost, if they screw it up because they didn't do the research on a, an appraisal that's out in the country and find out how much that was going to run instead of a regular house in a city, if we don't do our due diligence, then it's not fair to make the buyer of the home pay for our lack of giving them good faith estimates. So these disclosures have to be signed. And again, a processing team helps ensure that those things are taking place. And then, of course, it, we go out and we request from Jeff a title policy. Now, Jeff, how many people are involved in title? Whew. Well, you typically when you when a contract is submitted, <laughs> big breath. We are an escrow entity, so this is where they're depositing the option and the earnest money with us. And as you ask me, how many people? 
one thing to keep in mind, the title company does not represent the buyer nor the seller. They represent the contract and the terms of that agreement therein. Uh, now, the number of people that are working on that transaction, right away and up front, there's an escrow officer who's licensed by the state, and they will typically have an assistant, maybe more depending on their book of business and how many transactions they're closing uh, in a month. Now, that's who's processing the file, communicating with you, Blair, the lender, communicating with Alan, the realtor, communicating with everyone during that process. Um, those are the main two. But then we also, you know, I was just telling you guys a story as you, we have underwriting. So we're issuing a title policy. So there is underwriting to look at that, just like your homeowners or your cars, it's risk assessment. And we are looking to say, what is our risk at issuing a title policy here? And is the title clean? So that's our job. There's a lot of people behind the scenes, but their main two uh, fact people who are communicating up front are the escrow officer and their assistant. And and so again, the title policy really protects the buyer to any claims that could happen once they may gain ownership of this property. Yes, I, I like to use a comparison. Your homeowners and your car insurance you're paying for monthly is for anything that might happen in the future the title policy is protecting you on everything in the past as far as that chain of title and who has owned it since the first deed that was ever issued on that piece of property and so as does a that lender, prevent the need for the that stuff they're selling on television the title whatever <laughs> title lock guarantee title yeah I, yeah I, let's put it this way i've been in the business this is my 30th year i do not have it nor do i know anyone in the title insurance industry who is purchasing that i think people need to hear that why not why you should be buying some well you're welcome to but you know if something's gonna if someone's gonna be committing fraud uh i mean you're just worst case scenario you're gonna end up in court if someone did commit fraud and, and change the title to your property now, that being said, here's the key. It'd be one thing if those companies said, hey, if you if fraud's ever committed and someone transferred title fraudulently and, and took some loans out on your property, you know what they don't supply? They don't supply the attorneys that you're going to need to go to court to clean that to clean that up. That's the that's the biggest aspect I see. They're going to send you an alarm, but you'll find out sooner or later because if someone fraudulently changed the title of your property and took a second mortgage out, that lenders are going to be contacting you. And, can and I just, I could just call you and say, Hey, it's, I'm good. Right. If, uh, not if it happens once you remember that'd be happening after you own it, your policy represents and protects you from the past. If farmer Jones kids and he owned it and he worked that land a hundred years ago and they come back and said, Hey, we know he never signed off on this. Someone forged his name. Then that's where the title policy comes in to protect you. The past. This would be taking place after you own it. So it, it would be the forward. And so, no, the, your policy wouldn't be protecting you there. So let me ask you two quick questions. One deals with this initial disclosure piece that you're giving. You send out a title opinion before you issue a title policy. How long Correct. does it? Tell our listeners how long you have to get that to a buyer of a property, according to the Texas contract. Um, it's in the neighborhood of 20 days. And we okay. usually have like, it's what we call a commitment, which I call a book report, basically, of every all the findings on I that I love property. that. Cliff notes? 
you got it. <laughs> That's it. It's perfect. Okay. Because when you think about it, if a title policy was issued seven years ago, we're going to go back and start the research from that point. But most every what we call a title plant, if you had to, it's pretty cool to see there's the giant book still of the handwritten transfer of sale and deeds. You could go back to sovereignty and tra tra track a property down if you had to. And the second question I have deals with uh, oftentimes what is referred to, I know by my realtor friends, is opening title. What happens in the event that a listing agent takes a property listed and they claim that they've opened title with you? What does that what does that entail? Well, first of all, then I should have a commitment right away. Typically, our commitments or cliff notes are ready in three days. We have right now the average is three days. But um, if if someone's telling you they have title work open, you said, all right, I'd like the commitment here within a couple hours. If you're just trying to, you know, if you're just trying to test them to make sure they've done that, that's the okay. easy And the reason I ask that in my class, I teach something that is often a fallacy in the industry as far as Section 9 of RESPA. And Section 9 of RESPA clearly states that the person that is getting the title insurance, the buyer of the property, chooses their title company. And it does not matter who's paying for it. The actual choice of the title agent, the title insurance, who does it protect? It protects the buyer. So for a real estate agent to go in and insist that they use somebody, guess what? That's a treble damage lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And while a lot of our listeners, I try to make this known in my classes with my real estate professionals, please don't yield or whatever. If you've got a title policy, you want the buyer to be choosing who is going to insure them, like you said, up until the day they close that's for as long as they own the property up to the day they close, they're getting insurance. So they should be whoever they're comfortable with. They should be choosing whoever they're going to want as far as that coverage is concerned. Don't have the smoke of screen of the, well, the seller's paying for it. So I, you got to choose blah, blah, blah. That it's again, it's basically against the law. It's a violation of section nine of RESPA real estate settlement procedures act. Am I right about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not promoted. It's very, it's very daily said. And Tom's point is a good one because I think most realtors don't think about that whatsoever. And I know he, he's, he's teaching it in the class, and I'm sure a lot of those folks coming out of his class are more aware of it than a lot of realtors. But the thing, you know, it it comes down to uh, many times in a busy, busy market whose offer are we going to take? You know, when, two years ago, you were just loving to get somebody to take your offer, you know, a little different. So uh, the law meets negotiation in mysterious ways. And uh, um, you are open to a lawsuit, but, you know, happens daily. And, uh, and you know, different markets are different boxes people check. And I'll mention again, it's a treble damage lawsuit. Mm -hmm. It is Explain. three times the amount. And what you're doing when you're doing that as a listing agent, you're putting your seller at risk. So you're not representing their best interest. You're not creating a fiduciary when you're insisting that 
in a contract, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't think you should take this contract because they're not signing on with my title company. You're putting your seller at risk, which again, I just, I have to emphasize to my real estate community, stop doing that. It's not in their best interest. And what has to happen, what has to happen to have that go forward in a lawsuit? A buyer has to say in a lawsuit that I was forced into using this other title company to be able to get the house. And so the damages are three times what they paid? That's correct. So if you've got a $4,000 lawsuit, I'm sorry, if you got a $4,000 title insurance policy and associated costs to get it, you could end up paying 12 grand on behalf of the buyer after the closing if you're the seller of the house. I would then be suing the uh, realtor all over the place and their e is going to jump up. Speaking of other insurance policies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Tom just had a mic drop moment. Congratulations. But there you go. So again, coming in, we're, we're discussing all about the people that are involved in your home buying process. Title is significant and it's longstanding. Now, back in the lender's box, we go into, we get disclosure signed. We also have our own underwriter, and generally we have an, a two-process or two-step underwriting. Initial underwriting goes in, initial conditional uh, underwriting approval, and then there's conditions that we meet. Our processing loan origination team helps you track all those down. It could be something simple as a letter of explanation on something, to maybe further documentation on earnest money, or it could be further understanding of, hey, you owned a property, you didn't say anything here. All of those sorts of things go into helping us to close your loan. But then we also have an appraiser. At that time, we order an appraisal because an inspection, which is what Alan orders, to an appraiser, with appraisal that we order, evaluates the home for value. And we want to make sure the loan that we're giving, because the collateral is the home for the loan, we want to make sure it covers our loan value. Now, Alan, recently it hadn't been a problem, the home covering the value for the most part. Or if the home doesn't cover the value that the loan is, people have to come up with cash for that difference. That's called overbid. And that has been taking place over the last three years. I'm not sure how much that's happening recently. I haven't seen too many overbid ask, but uh, that's where that appraisal comes into. And that's reported and paid for by the buyer and comes into the lender. You receive a copy of the appraisal, but you do not have to share that. That stays between the buyer and the lender. If you choose to share that with your realtor, with other organizations being county appraisal districts, that's your choice. But I would not do that. Tom, you want to help us explain why you don't want to share your appraisal with anyone? <laughs> well, the appraisal has lots of different information as far as condition of property. If you share your appraisal, I mean, there's a multitude of different situations with regards to that. If you share your appraisal with uh, the lender, 
the lender already knows and they see the condition of the house and that type of deal. So why would I share it necessarily with the seller? Sometimes what happens is, and this is this comes with the home inspection as well, the home inspection, the condition of the house, a buyer of a property may go ahead and share that in order to make it a part of the negotiation process. Because if the appraisal says the house is worth 250 and you're paying the contract was 260, it's fair to go ahead on your side and say, look, listing agent, here it is. When you give that to the listing agent and correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, inspections, appraisals have to be presented to the seller of the property. It's it's property information. It's information regarding their property and they don't like getting them, the listing agent, because they don't want the negative part to go back to their bar, their seller, which impacts their ability to sell the property in the future. But if you, more knowledge is, is dangerous in our business, but this is a buyer beware state. So buyers can leverage those types of documents and information to their benefit if they're used judiciously and in a proper fashion. Buyer beware is so huge. That is, that is the exact word for real estate. Um, buyer beware. It's, you know, it's your money, it's your future and um, do the diligence. It's just, it's a huge, huge thing. It really is. It is. It is. And, and again, future, my son went through with this in Houston. Now, Tom, help us understand why, why would a county appraisal district demand a copy of the appraisal? I mean, do they have a right to do, to do that when they register or when they set up their homestead? I'm not you know, understanding that to be the case. No, the multiple listing service is where the county gets their data, where they get their information from. So the multiple listing service should properly reflect accurate numbers. And if they don't have the exact numbers in the multiple listing service that properly reflect that, you can take your, your appraisal down and say, well, this is what the appraiser said the house is worth. But most of the time, the appraisal entity, whatever, whether it's TAD or DCAD or Harris County uh, appraisal district, whatever the appraisal district sees out there in the public domain, they can utilize to come to value on the property. And now, that's where they should be. They, they don't have a right to demand from a borrower, hey, send me the appraisal. Well, I was concerned when they start doing homestead exemptions right at closing, instead of waiting, that they were trying to get the value or the transactional cost and, and, and sell price from title. I did not know, but again, able to do that. They have no indication from title when a homestead exemption signed or requested on a property that they get a value because that of course they want to raise the value as much as they can um, so that taxes can be paid. Uh, I yeah, want, you I want you to get to see with. that as a taxpayer because it's their opinion of value, just like the opinion of value that's expressed in the appraisal, the actual physical appraisal itself. What happens is the bottom line becomes they've appraised me at closing the appraisal district for 300 grand. And I've got a contract that said I bought the property for 275. 
I can go in there the day I close and say, look, this is public record. I paid 275 for it, Re <clears throat> reduce my value down to 275. Now, if the county says it's worth 300 and you paid 325, you run in there and tell them, right? Right. Yeah. Of course. You're not obligated, required, or under law have to divulge the fact you paid 325 and it's appraised at 300 for the county. So those things, it's again, their due diligence and their responsibility. That's why it's our responsibility as taxpayers every year to monitor what the valuations are coming from the different counties. I mean, this year, a rental property that I own up in um, Denton County they came back and nailed me. They nearly increased the value nearly 50%. And boy, that was one of the ones this year I said, mm, we're going to go protest that one. And so I'm still on the wait list. They're so backed up. I'm still waiting to hear back on my appeal as far as that goes. Do y'all remember it's been around for a long time. I had a picture of what you think your house is worth what the appraisal thinks with the tax county. <laughs> I don't know if I, and by the time it's over, the county thinks you, you own a mansion. It, it, the, picture, the last picture of the house was a, a I, I posted that. I posted that again on LinkedIn this weekend. <laughs> I do it every, every two weeks just to keep it out there. And it is so true. It's such so, a great little. So again, to understand the people that are active behind your loan, your purchase of your home, we have an appraisal coming through. Now with all of this done, appraisal, title, conditional underwriting, we go to the final underwriting. We, we all love those magical three letters, right? Magical three letters, CTC, clear to close. Then a whole nother group gets involved. We get final numbers from title. We balance with our closing department. And of course, scheduling. Now, Jeff, one of the things that I find it amazing, and you can help me understand, so many buyers feel like they have to come in to a title company and sit down and sign. But yet you time and time again prove everyone wrong where we can close in front of the home, we can close at Starbucks, we can close, we can sign on this anywhere. Is that right? Yes, sir. As long as it's not a cash out refi, a cash out refi has to be signed at a law office, a title office, or a lender's office. Right. But a purchase can be signed anywhere and it's, can be done. Why? What about the comfort level for the client? Uh, a first time home buyer, they're going to be more of the mindset that they it's it's good for them to come into the office. It's good for them to be able to, it's just that comfort level for them. Whereas if you've done this five, four or five times, it's not a big deal. You know a lot about what you're signing or what you're doing. Um, the only thing we keep in mind is how, that we do want to get the documents back to the title office quickly to help fund uh, quickly as well. So that's really the biggest part of, you know. And, and you know, the thing that's really reared its ugly head, you know, from like 67 million or $670 million just 2017 to 2.7 billion as of 2022 is wire fraud. And title companies are pulling their hair out with wire fraud as far as warnings. And uh, I just did a to the point video last week on it. I'm just astonished at how much that is growing. Um, so a couple of tips were reported to the FBI if you think you've been frauded. And 
And when you get instructions from anybody, including title, do a self-check. Don't call the number on the email to verify where the funds are going. Look up the number yourself, the phone number yourself. Call that company and then talk to them about the wire instructions. And those are two key things. Um, I just could not believe what I was reading about wire fraud. It is exploding. There was last year alone, I think, and, and this is on a more of a national level, just with our company, there was over 8 million attempts at wire fraud. Yeah, and 2022 is uh, $2.8 billion, and it was $680 million just in 2017, so that's tripled. And I think it's important, too, that people think, you know, we use security email, and then we have sometimes uh, a buyer seller going, oh, this is such a pain, you know, to mess with security. The pain is there for a reason. It may be a little bit of annoying, but, um, you know, just recently, I know there was a realtor involved with this. This realtor client had said, oh, this, this security email is annoying. The realtor cut and paste the wiring instructions into a PDF, sent it to their client, and then that got hacked. And the realtor ended up having to pay oh, just somewhere around 100, 100 grand for it. Because yeah, I mean you can't that, that mess with that mess with the the secured uh, email. You know, it's it's the thing, and, and everybody's Blair and Tom, and everybody's heard me say this years and years and years. Stay in your own lane, realtor. Get in your lane. Now you're going to get asked a lot of questions by clients, but no shortcuts. <laughs> if you don't know the answer, don't make one up. You know, it's okay. easy to call Jeff and go, "Well, how do I do this? What's the best way?" Can you please talk to my client, Jeff? And don't shortcut. And it's not just new realtors either. It's just nope. busy realtors, easy enough, secure, secure. It's my email, blah, blah, blah. But if you read the stuff I read about wire fraud, it'd scare the daylights out of you. Well, I guess one of the things I, with that conversation I wanted to bring up, Tom, you can give a percentage to this, but understanding what a lender does a large percentage of our time is spent ensuring we are not dealing with a fraudulent situation. I would almost say 60% of our actions in a loan process help us to cover and ensure that fraud is not taking place, whether it's the down payment, is, uh, down payment of the program or payment or income or anything. Would you agree with that, Tom, that over 50% of our job is to ensure fraud is not taking place in the real estate market? Well, maybe I look at it a little bit differently. I would say that 90% of our time is spent making sure the loan is saleable. In other words, the investor's okay. guidelines are being met, which does include, as you mentioned, the responsibility to uh, monitor for fraud as we're going through the process. So in the process, maybe 10% is done with building the relationship and making it stronger with our borrower, reinforcing them so that they will come back to and have, refer us to their friends to use us for future deals. But the other 90% is uh, intensely making sure that, you know, the value is there, the appraisal is done properly, that the documentation we've received is accurate with regards to the bar that we've been selling to our underwriter, that all that, that the loan is really basically, ultimately we're responsible for the saleability of the loan, even down to the numbers that are given at the very end. 
I always contend the most important person in the transaction is the closer because they're the ones that ultimately reflect all the money that's going to be made on the deal. And if they do it incorrectly, that's a, that's a real high pressure job for them to be in. So one of the last things they do before we close the transaction or actually before they send the CD out for uh, the title company to get the, the CD, the last thing they do is send it to who? The loan originator to make sure all the numbers were correct. At least that's how all the companies I've worked for, they ultimately put that back on our shoulders as the loan originator to say, okay, this is, we're finally at the end. Here are the numbers. Is this what you told the consumer when you first started this process? You know, and the consumer, it goes back to buyer beware, but it's really hard sometimes for buyers to beware. It's, it's I don't know, a, a simple comparison is, you know, foundation companies, five can come over, tell you five different things. And how does a buyer beware? It's something you just have no knowledge of on what's right and what's not right. And so it's um, a lot of trust in real estate and lending and, and learning. And um, that's why I think the message here with Blair early on the, at the show was surround yourself with good people, at least best you know to surround yourself with. And if you get a hiccup, address it. Don't sign something you don't understand. Don't go forward of things you don't, you know, something's not right. Pause. And um, that's the best policy. Well, you're exactly right, Alan, is to ask questions. The worst thing that a buyer can do is delete an email or just forget, not react, not understand, and delay the transaction, but also go in there with all of a sudden a closing table. I didn't know this was taking place when the opportunity is, and Tom, you're exactly right. I get back from our closing. Hey, is this this what we ended up with? This is how we balanced. Is everything good here from your perspective, LO? And of course, you know, sometimes there are differences. Hey, you forgot a seller credit of $5,000 here. You missed it. Where is that? Um, but well, Jeff, Jeff took it off. I can't believe he didn't tell me. Why didn't he give really? me that amended contract? That dirty Jeff, I tell you. <laughs> Never fails. <laughs> I like you a lot, Jeff. I thank you for your support, Alan. You're welcome. Jeff, no. you, we have you here so we can always blame somebody. We have to blame time. I'm used, I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> There's something they say that always rolls downhill. So, <laughs> you know, again, if, if you don't leads. understand, if, you, if you're working through your transaction or you're trying to understand whether you're a seller or a buyer, get with your key contacts. But understand there's in excess, and I think we counted this up, Tom, one time, that we're, there's an excess of 39 people behind the realtor and the lender that <laughs> help on a transaction, depending That's on surprising. all the situations, all the items from flood insurance on down, appraisals, second inspections. All of that takes place. There's so many people involved. So please, please, they're all human. Mistakes can be made. But please ask your questions, get an answer, because we want you to feel comfortable, but we also want you to understand why something is being done. Why is your earnest money important? Why are we doing a credit pull at this time? Why do we want to move your credit, get it better for a better rate? What's going on in the market? All these things impact you 
on your decision to make the best loan, the best purchase possible. And so that's our overall effort here. We wanted to make sure you understand it. Find us at welcomehomeradio.net, like and share us there. Uh, any final comments, guys? Well, I, I just think this was a good show because um, there's an answer for every question out there. Sometimes we don't know to ask the question, and sometimes we don't like the answer to the question that we did ask. But we have to get to the truth, and it's it's always best to land on your feet. And that's sometimes. exactly what my parole officer says, Alan. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Well, well it's I'm... it's always good to have you here, Tom, and your experience in a jail cell. Yep. <laughs> Are you keeping your ankle monitor on, Tom? Or are you taking it off? Uh, they're not taking it off for another month, but somewhere in August, it's it really it's really pretty warm. It sweats, and oh, it's a horrible thing. Well, I know 2008 was a hard year on you, so we appreciate <laughs> you. <laughs> hey, thank you all again for the time. God bless. I'm Blair Thomas, and I'm Tom Holm. I'm Alan Pace. I'm Jeff Duffy. God bless. Take care. Welcome home radio production provided by Lunatic Digital. Check the listing of this podcast for the links to our sponsors. And don't forget to like, share, and follow us on social media. Visit welcomehomeradio.net for more information. This was a Lunatic Digital production. Visit lunaticdigital.com for all your digital needs.